Hi, and welcome to the Writers' Forum on WRBH. I'm David Benedetto, and today I'll be speaking with two writers, starting with visiting poet Donna Messini, who is the professor of English at Hunter College in New York and author of several collections, including her latest book, 430 Movie, which is out now from W.W. Norton. How's it going today, Donna? It's going well, David. How are you? I'm doing very well. I'm so glad to get you in the studio while you're here in town. Mm, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to be in New Orleans. Um, to kind of start us off, uh, you have a new book out, mm-hmm. 430 Movie. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me a little bit about how that project began and how it ended up becoming a collection. You know, whenever I hear people talk about projects, it, it drives me nuts. Yeah. Even my students, they they say they say, well, my project is, and I, I just don't think in terms of projects. Okay, interesting. I just accumulate. It takes me a while to write a book of poems, and I don't even I think no, I'm writing it as as I'm writing it, and poems begin to accumulate. Um, I know that I had certain things in mind while I was writing. I I teach. When I teach poetry, I often teach it through film. So through film technique or through, um, I might, you know, say, start here, start with an establishing shot, give me three jump cuts. I, I started doing this when I realized students were just, not just students, poets were just like blah, 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 blah. You didn't see in every anything, and what you did see was often sort of shot Everything was shot medium. Yeah. You know? So I'm like, what happens if you go into a close-up right here, right? What happens if you pull the camera back? What happens now if you write what you see outside the frame of the camera? What? Yeah. So I think I was playing with and thinking about that with my students, and uh, I began... I wrote a poem for Phil Levine, asked me to write a poem for this special issue um, of a magazine for his... I don't know what birthday it was. And because I didn't know him well, but we used to trade movie idea. Like he's, he watched great movies and I would always tell him, have you seen, have you seen this movie? Have you seen the band's visit? This is a long time ago. Um, And so I wrote a poem called movie for him. And then um, I began to see that things were, were coming together. And then, um, then my sister died. Or my sister got sick, and I spent, you know, a long time just taking care of her, and you know, didn't write anything. I couldn't, I could barely write my name. Yeah. And uh, again, I didn't really know I was writing a book, and to tell you the truth, it was just I was coming up for full professor, and they were going to be sending all my poems out to all these other poets to look at, and I thought, oh no. And somebody read the poems and said, you should send this to your editor, send the book. I thought, it's not even a book. And I sent it, and she's like, I want the book. So then what was sort of, you know, it's like what Blake says, what's now proved was once only imagined. Yeah. So then I sort of imagined this book, and I had made up a title, 430 Movie, and then it was a book. Wow. All right. So all these, like, kind of navigating streams coming together and just, like, happening, right? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, and you don't even know... In a way, don't even know you're navigating. Yeah. Like, I don't know when... It's so hard to write a poem. Yeah. I mean, maybe other people have easier times of it. I don't... I think a lot of people don't. It's so hard to write a poem that oftentimes I don't know I've written something until I I go back and look at it 
and then come back once I'm in the revision part. Yeah. Then the poem starts to open up yeah. for me. Interesting. What's the hardest part that you found throughout your writing career of writing po poems to this day? Like, is there some certain function of it that still is just incredibly difficult for you? I think it's getting quiet enough to listen and be receptive so that I'm not willing. You, We all know what those willed poems. I'm sure you do. Do you write poems? I do. Yeah. So you know what the willed poem is, right? You know, it looks like a poem, sounds like a poem, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but it's not really a poem. And I think, you know, with somebody else, sometimes you can tell that, like with a student. I don't know how. I'm yeah. kind of like a Geiger counter for certain things. And yeah. It just doesn't... And I think the hardest part for me is to allow. And allowing, it, there's a long, there's a long hard part. The long hard part begins with not believing I'll ever write another poem. Then it begins, then it continues into getting quiet. Then it continues into not continually interrupting what I'm what I'm receiving or trying to get down on the page by saying you're an idiot, you have nothing to say, there's, um, you're mediocre, your poems are mediocre, you're a mediocre person, you know, there's people dying and who cares about your poem, you know, all of that stuff yeah. gets in the way. So that when I manage to get something on the page, what happens is if I get excited by sounds or rhythms or if my mind like sort of catches on my sort of incomplete understanding of something like Stephen Hawking, like physics or time or, you know, or I get like recently I've been walking around. Uh, sorry, you can tell that I kind of meander, right? Yeah. And, you know, I open up a lot of different parentheses here. Um, recently I've been asking people I see, you know, what if you could only stick to one tense? If you could only speak in, like, for a week, present tense, past tense, future tense, which tense would you pick? Or if you could only use one kind of sentence, would it be a statement, question, exclamations, commands? What would, what would that be? And so, like, sometimes th something like that will pull me further into a poem, just asking myself a question yeah. in the middle of it. And that gets me over the hump of the hard part. You see, I, I am going to pull it back around to yeah. the closed parentheses, <laughs> um, which sometimes I don't do. Mm -hmm. But that those are the kinds of things, if I can sort of step outside of myself and be excited about and pulled by the language or, you know, or an image that comes from a, a phrase. Um, I recently was reading a piece in The New Yorker about memory. No, it was about the loss of memory and, and treating people for memory and the, um, the ethics of lying to a patient mm -hmm. or a parent, you know, who's ha has Alzheimer's or has difficulty in, in memory. And um, there was a, a, um, something called simulated response therapy. Mm. I just thought that's amazing. And if you just take that and just run with it, um, 
So those are the kinds of things that get me over the hard part. But I think for me, in writing, everything's the hard part. Yeah. Interesting. Mm. Um, going back to the, that, that tidbit you brought up about, you know, if you could only speak in one tense for the rest of your life, uh, what did you decide? It was only for a week. Yeah. And it wasn't for the rest of my life. No, for a week. But I was, um, I was thinking, I was cheating a little bit because I was thinking, oh, I, I would pick present. Yeah. Tense. I would pick present tense. Um, and reserve, like, and, and hope the week went quickly and to see what it felt like to only use past tense. But present tense, um, I, I mentioned it to somebody else and she said, oh, I experienced that when I was speaking Spanish, which I don't know very well and only, I could only say things in the present tense. And yeah. it was like a relief not to have, like, blah, blah, I did this and here's my past. And But I also thought when you're speaking in a language that you really don't know well, and you don't know the tense other than you use hand signals. So I'll use hand signals. So I'll say, um, you know, I'm eating and I'll like push my hand back that way to mean that it, I did it yesterday, yeah, yeah. you know, word <laughs> forward, you know, I eat, you yeah. know, meaning later. Um, so, but you can't use those, those hand signals. Why, what would you pick? I was thinking, uh, I think past, honestly. You would. I would. I, I think a, it would be kind of a challenge, but also it's my like proclivity towards mm -hmm. uh, storytelling and, and looking at a, a larger contest of things that have come before. I think it would make it less transactional in like mm -hmm. practice, and I'd have to be very wary of how like I applied that. But mm -hmm. it'd make me more careful about speaking uh, in general, and it would make um, me care more about the story aspect of, of what I'm what I'm saying, you know, because it, it happened already. And there's a lot of implications of that that I haven't quite delved in in this five minute period, but I do think it would be interesting. No, I think it'd yeah. be interesting too because I was just thinking, well, you're an interviewer here, and you wouldn't be able to ask questions, but of course you could ask questions in the past tense. I could yeah, you could. <laughs> Everything uh -uh. before this moment, nothing mm -hmm. ahead. Right, exactly, <laughs> nothing ahead. And I'm a very retrospective person. Yeah, I'm so I so immediately. I mean. I think it's interesting that I said the present because being an anxious person, I'm usually about the past and the future. Yeah. And it's very hard to stay present. But to get around it, the storytelling part, you could think about when you're writing a poem and it's past tense and you're writing about it in in present tense. Yeah. So, you know, I'm five years old. I'm watching my father put on his work clothes. He's coming home. He's all covered with grease. You know, he cleans out oil burners. You know, it 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 makes it more immediate. Yeah. Um, but you know, I've just really been asking the question, and and you know, every I don't want to be held to to the present tense. Well, especially not right now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's hard, especially like in tumultuous times, kind of like without thinking about wider context of the past or thinking about what's going to happen in the future. That and it would be a really you. boring radio interview. It would right? be, yeah. We're, we're sitting right? here, you're drinking I'm water. I'm speaking, I'm drinking speaking. water. <laughs> I'm looking at your blue hat. Yeah, uh, yeah. you couldn't really avoid that. But in the past, there, I think, are more work arounds. Um, future, I'm not sure what, what to do with that. that. That would be interesting as well. Well, what's now proved was once only imagined. So, oh, you'd have to imagine. Imagine in the present. <laughs> <laughs> True. There's all these thought processes. Uh, um, speaking of which, I'm really interested in your focus of our, our kind of strategy of describing poetry through the lens of film. Mm. Um, no pun intended. No pun intended, uh, exactly. Right. I, I think that's super useful and, and something in my own writing and my own reading, I, I find, you know, those analogies from another 
mode, you know, kind of looking at being easier because talking about poetry is very hard. It is. It's very hard. Uh, and film gets into a lot of the same, um, gets into a lot of the main ways that, that poetry functions, but in its own language. Um, when did you start kind of navigating those descriptors? Has it been something that you've always done? You mean vis-a-vis film? Yeah, vis-a-vis film. No pun intended. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, it's not something I've always done. I love film. You know, at a certain point, I started realizing that my grad students never seen a foreign film. Yeah. And, oh, you know, never seen Bergman. They hadn't, not Bergman, they hadn't even seen Wong Kar Wai. Or, um, and I wanted them to watch, and I began to also talk about... Um, shifts in tone in a poem and say, look at this, Truffaut, look, look at Shoot the Piano Player. Look at, there are so many, it's like looking at a John Berryman poem, there's so, so many different registers, yeah. so many different tones, you know, so Shoot the Piano Player, there's part romance, there's part comedy, there's drama, there's um, noir, there's all, and, and there's many different kinds of movements of camera. There's flash forwards, there's flash backwards. It's so, I, I think I was getting frustrated, you know, and sometimes I'll use painting. Yeah. You know, I'll say, like, look at this Pollock. Uh, I think the Pollock painting is called Four Poles or Blue Poles, something. And it was like, you know, it was like all those Pollock paintings, so like squiggly, 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 all of that. And then he felt that there was something that was not coming together. It just it, it just didn't seem to cohere. Yeah. And he just took the blue paintbrush and he just goes, bam, 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 bam. These four poles that that allow the, the painting to cohere around them. Yeah. So I could try to to talk about student poems by doing that. Yeah. You know, same way I could say, all right, look at this Elizabeth Bishop poem. Look at this Walt Whitman poem. See? You hear the camera's on the water, and then it moves up, and it's on the bird in the sky, and then the cloud, and then the cloud in the distant, and the further distant, and then it comes back, and now it's on the flag on the ship, and now it's on the rail of the Brooklyn Ferry, and now it's here, yeah. and then it shifts to the future. All of that, you know, and so, you know, so it, it's an easy way of saying to somebody, can we just like focus in a little bit and see where the fly is crawling on the lip of the bottle here? Yeah. You know, like move in, zoom in, zoom out. And then the sort of rhetoric that comes can be just bump, bump, bump. It, it could even be, it doesn't even have to be an image. Yeah. It can just be in those little jump cuts. But anyway, sometimes it's easier to use that and, um, and once I started doing that, I was really interested in, you know, the idea of a mind screen. Yeah. You know, what is that in a film? Um, when you do see something from the perspective, you see what the character is seeing, not only in front of them, but what they think and what's in there. You see, it's, it's all about subjectivity inside their mind. And then where it jumps from one thing to another. And that's interesting to me. Okay. Interested? That's a good answer. I, I'm excited about that. Um, yeah, that that's super useful. You as should well. try it. Yeah. Give yourself three things. Say, start with an establishing shot. Um, then go medium, medium. Then pull back for a long shot. Then have three jump cuts. Then mind screen, right? And then a crane shot. What would that do? 
the process itself is creating a structure for you right there. It makes a structure. And for a student, for students, sometimes they write their best poems because, you know what, their conscious mind, the part that's willing the poem, is focused on what is this shot. And so the unconscious things, the kinds of things that will occur to them, yeah, the kinds of things that will occur to them, the unconscious things will, will come in. It'll, they'll just, you know, and then they can come back and, and revise, and then they can forget what the whole process was supposed to, to be. If the poem demands it all be medium shot, then let it be medium shot. Okay. But they've got the language. They've got it on the page, and maybe they have a different kind of texture, yeah. and they haven't had to say, oh, okay, um, you know, the syntax of the sentence, it's right branching, or it's uh, a mid-branch sentence. They can look at it in, in another way. Yeah, and the, the, the kind of infinite opportunities to try different things. Should I keep on that medium shot, make it a tracking shot? Right. Um, or, you know, uh, do a close-up, uh, bring out a certain rhythm to it. What else is in the frame, you know? Right. Um, that's really cool. It's great. So if you ever try to to write a tracking shot, yeah. it's just really interesting. Yeah. Or to sit, like sometimes, I was doing this last night, I mean yesterday morning in the um, airport, I was waiting, and I thought, okay, here's my frame. Between that table and that table, there's my frame. My camera's set up. I can only look at what's coming through there. Yeah. And it's just an interesting way to really focus in and pay attention. I mean, it's not always going to make a poem. But it's it's a good exercise it's a, it's in a, general. Yeah, yeah, it's a focusing thing. Interesting. Okay, cool. Um, to kind of to flip a little bit, I... I have read that you are in the process of working on uh, your second novel. Yeah, it's it's a bit on hold. Yeah. I mean, I really have an entire a whole draft. Wow. Of it, and I'm really excited about this novel. I did stop working on it when my um, uh, when my sister was sick, and also my agent had sent it out to about ten places. And it kept getting really close, and then they'd say, they, well, they weren't sure what the demographic Would was be. for this marketing, didn't know what the demographic was. And then somebody um, who read it as an editor said, well, she wasn't quite sure people were interested in immigration and class. Mm. And now, <laughs> I'm just going to leave that where it is. I think that that implies all that you needed to imply. Um, I think uh, people are very interested in immigration in class at the current moment. No, just think, oh my God, it's like... <laughs> yeah. um, well, you're, you're ahead of the curve and now you'll be on the curve. <laughs> I can't even talk about it. Uh, what's, the, what's the name of the book? The Good Enough Mother. Okay, interesting. Yeah, it comes um, from Winnicott. You know Winnicott? No. Uh, well, you know, he's... He is, do you know the idea of the holding environment or the transitional object? I do not. Um, this is interesting, though. Uh, the Good Enough Mother is one of his ideas. He comes out of British uh, object relations, um, oh. and he was a pediatrician. He is, he's got a book, that he, he really speaks to artists. Yeah. He's got one of his books is called Play and Reality. Um, his therapy is very relational. Yeah. Um, and it would be too much to sort of go into the history of object relations therapy. But Winnicott, if you haven't read Winnicott, he's great. Okay. And Adam Phillips, you know Adam Phillips? Yes, um, yes, yeah. You know, kissing, tickling, mm -hmm. being bored. 
Adam Phillips wrote the great small biography of uh, Winnicott that's also um, really describes all of his key concepts and uh, in the development of his thought. Okay. That's a great place to start. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Oh, excited to see that come out eventually. Um, I'm hoping for you. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a short time left, but I do want to hear a, a couple more things. Um, wh- what's a poem or poet that you continually come back to? Uh, Dickinson, yeah, Whitman. I know I'm going to forget. Uh, I come back to. I'm such a rereader that I really come back to poets yeah. more than I move forward reading new ones mm-hmm. in a way. So, um, I, you know, I come back to Virginia Woolf. I come back to the first and last book of Proust. I come back to Bishop Plath. You know, and then when it's a contemporary poet. I might come back to the, a particular book of, say, Terence Hayes, yeah. right? Or a particular book of Brenda Hillman. I go back always to reread The Death Tractates and yeah. Bright Existence. Um, but I do, I like coming back. Um, you like the deepening aspect of it? I do. Yeah. I do. And I like going back and sort of rediscovering and reseeing, which you have to do a lot when you're teaching because you can't just do the same thing. Even when you're teaching the same poet, you've got to go back and recontextualize yeah. and, and get it set up either for the student's sake and for your own sake. Yeah. Because there, there are things to be found, uh, yeah. for, for especially the great artists. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, interesting. Yeah. Um, and, and finally, I could talk to you all day. This is a lot of fun, by the way. Uh, but I want to get you back this to your adventure. This is so easy. Well, I ahead. know. It's so easy. That Maybe that's why they call it the big easy. Uh, it's been a little bit. You know, we're a little less intense for uh-huh. the most part. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but but kind of to, to wrap it up, um, what are you reading right now? What's on your, your radar that you've been enjoying? Oh, God. Okay. So I'm always in the middle of a thousand things. Great. Yes. So what do I have in my bag? Oh, so... Uh, a book on time by uh, Eva Hoffman Okay. to make up for the fact that I've never actually gotten through the entire um, Stephen Hawking book. But this, um, I'm reading um, an essay on laughter by Henri Bergson, okay. um, who also writes a lot about time. Yeah. Um, I'm reading something called The Empire of Cotton, which is Fascinating. It's the history of cotton. Oh, yeah. I mean, really, the history of cotton. So, it, so it's slavery, and it's it's um, but but it's it's how uh, what England did to India, and what and what what happened in you know a thousand BC, and um, it, it's everything about cotton. It's like reading the history of the world through one individual thing. One thing. It's, I, it's brilliant. I, I love books like that. I find that is such a, a useful conceit for nonfiction writers and the ones that do it brilliantly. Are, it's just like it can change your life and, and viewpoints. Yeah, it's really great. So, of course, I'm reading that. And, um, you know, I'm always reading Virginia Woolf, even when I'm not reading her. <laughs> um, you know, it's in a very anxious time for me right now. And yeah. so I, I've been reading so much more nonfiction. I think it's just like holding on to these facts, even if it's like a you know, a fact of about, you know, undecidability, yeah. <laughs> even if it's a, a, a fact about, you know, um, what we can't know. Um, it just makes me, I can write it down in my notebook and they're sort of, you know, certain, they're like handrails, yeah. right, into the present and they keep you grounded, like a book, like The Hidden Life of Trees. Yeah. It's a beautiful book. And so that, yeah, those kinds of things. You know, I grew up without books. Yeah. 
my family. And um, and then when I was in the fourth grade, we moved, and there was a library, and I think I wanted to read everything. And I just, you know, I mean, there are periods of time where all I read is fiction, but, I, you know, I, I just, I want to be that person. I, I just, I want to read everything, and the thing always leads me to the next thing. Like, my mind is like some... Like, it's like these hyperlinks all over that I keep, you know, wanting to follow. And uh, the hard part is, like, you read things and you forget them, and then you have to reread them. Mm -hmm. And then you forget, and you're like, oh, my God, I read a whole book about cotton, and all I know is, oh, my shirt is cotton. You know, like, (laughs) yeah. That was, I feel the exact same way, Um, which is part of why these days I, I make it a subject to know at least brief summaries about things that are available, even if I never get a chance to read them in total. Mm. I know at least some like working parameters around them, which isn't as fulfilling as I want it to be, but I am such a slow reader and I just can't get to things. No, I know it's true. Well, yeah. I write them down in my notebook. Yeah. And so I think in like in theory, what is in my notebook should be in my mind. But then I read my notebook and think, oh, I didn't know that. And then I do know it because I wrote it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was me at some point, I know, right? <laughs> at some point. Yeah. Um, well, Donna, this has been a, uh, a lovely conversation. Oh, such a joy to talk to you, David. It's really, you know, you made it so easy. I didn't have to study for this at all. Okay, good. I'm glad. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Okay, thank you. That was poet Donna Messini. Up next, I'll be speaking with author Ken Foster, who's out with a new book entitled City of Dogs. Hey, Ken, how's it going today? It's going well. Rainy, but yeah. um, but it's a good day for napping with dogs. <laughs> That's a good thing, then. Um, you have a new book coming out, City of Dogs. Uh, when's the publication date on that? It is October 9th, Tuesday, which um, we're taping this, but it, that would be tomorrow and in real time. <laughs> <laughs> well, exciting. Well, congratulations on that. Um, for, for our listeners' sake, how did this book kind of come about for you? Um, it came about, it started really because I moved back to New York City from New Orleans and took a job where I was going out into neighborhoods, particularly in the Bronx, that I didn't know at all. And um, doing outreach to support pet owners in underserved communities. And so I was exploring the city in a way that I hadn't ever done before and also meeting all these amazing dogs and their owners and their neighborhoods, which in some cases were neighborhoods I'd never even heard of. Um, and so that sort of sparked this idea of doing a book in which um, I went around the five boroughs of the city with a photographer and we met people and their dogs and learned about how they interact with their neighborhoods. Um, And, you know, we went everywhere from the Upper East Side of Manhattan to Hunts Point, which is an industrial area of the Bronx. And we went to Rikers Island, where prisoners work training dogs for service. And um, JFK Airport, where we spent a day behind the scenes with Homeland Security. so it really was an amazing way of looking at the city and and also recognizing something that I think we see all the time, which is that dogs are sort of a unifying factor in our lives yeah. where, you know, you get to know people that you would not otherwise uh, interact with sometimes simply because you know that you have dogs in common. Yeah, no, I get that. That's interesting. It serves as that focalizing force for people and can really bring people together. 
Um, what was your probably the most what was the most interesting place that you went in New York kind of within this book that you had never been before? Well, I I mean, there were so many and so many neighborhoods, I have to say, that I thought like, oh, man, I wish I lived here. Um, and some of them, they weren't fancy neighborhoods, but they were true neighborhoods where the people all knew each other. Um, one of those is Little Italy in the Bronx, which people don't even realize there is a, Bron- a Little Italy in the Bronx. Hmm. But it has all these amazing shops, and there's like, you know, in a very old-fashioned way where one store sells ravioli and just ravioli, you know, <laughs> like. <laughs> um, and so that was one of my favorite neighborhoods, I would say. But then also going into the prison on Rikers Island, um, which I'd never been inside a prison before, but also meeting these men who are waiting for trial and this lucky group of them get to live with dogs and train the dogs while they're waiting, um, which was incredible to see and to learn about the situation these men are in and trying to get out of. Um, um, And then we went also to JFK and I didn't realize that the dogs that work there also live there. So they have a whole little complex where they live um, and they do a lot of agricultural searching of mail and luggage. And, and so we got to see how they work and how much fun they have working, but also we got to see this table full of bizarre items that were seized because of the work they do, um, including just really exotic, strange, uh, edible or theoretically edible items that people send in the mail or try to smuggle in luggage. Um, and so that was fascinating, obviously. Do you think having a book like this in these kind of tumultuous times, um, not just in the United States, but kind of worldwide, you know, a, a kind of, can kind of be like a helpful or like a healthy reminder for people? I mean, I hope so. I think it it's all good. I mean, I, I'm not, I try not to be a sentimental or, you know, ridiculously optimistic person and people who know me would never describe me that way. But I do think when you look at all these stories and all these people who are all very different from very different backgrounds, have very different stories to tell that all include a dog, it sort of brings us back to some sense of humanity, maybe. Um, And also lets us see, again, like, you know, you may not live in New York City, you may not live in that particular part of the city, but you read a story and it strikes you because there's something that you see in 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 the person's relationships with their dog and their family and their neighborhood. Um, so there's that that commonality that we need, I think, maybe to be reminded of because we're confronted all the time with our supposed differences and disagreements. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, speaking of sentimentalism, um, there's a tendency sometimes in animal-based stories to veer into the sentimental or the nostalgic. Um, as a writer, as someone that's done this a lot, how do you try and avoid that? Oh, that's a good, it's a good question. For me, I think one of the things that I discovered when I started writing about dogs is that some sentimentality is fine. Yeah. You know, <laughs> um, I think sometimes we avoid it too much. Um, but in putting this together, one of the things I realized also when um, when telling these 40 different stories was that they didn't, I mean, it seems like an obvious thing, but they didn't all have to be the same. Mm-hmm. Like it would have been really boring if they all sort of took the same tone and were the same length and took the same approach to, to portraying this relationship. Um, and so um, 
for some reason, I had this epiphany at one point early on that I'm like, oh, they can actually be different. Like one can be serious and one can be funny and <laughs> one can be short and one can be a little bit longer. And that actually, you know, that's okay. And that will make it actually far more interesting for people to read um, because it's not hitting the same tone every single page. Um, and so there are, you know, there are all positive stories in the book, but some of them, you know, include loss, including the loss of previous dogs, um, include stories of, you know, families being separated or brought back together, um, people battling illness, grieving, uh, a husband. Um, and so I th thought it was also important to, to ground things in, in, in some of what we struggle through, but that we get through again, through our relationships with our community, including our dogs. Yeah, no, I get that. That's really interesting. Kind of differing it to that. Um, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. That was author Ken Foster. And before that we had poet Donna Messini and that's our show. You've been listening to the writer's forum on WRBH 88.3 FM here in new Orleans. You can catch our show on every Thursday at 3 PM as well as on Sundays at 8:30 AM. All of our programs are archived on our SoundCloud page, which can be found at soundcloud.com slash WRBH reading radio. I'm David Benedetto until next time.